Well, it is good to be here this evening. I do appreciate so much this opportunity to be here with you. I appreciate the elders asking me to come and you're being here tonight. It is good to be here again. It's been a few years since I've been here. It's good to have Lance with us tonight. Uh, glad you could slip in here. It is always a good... I mean, I just always enjoy opportunities to preach the gospel. And it's good to be with Mike and Kelly. Or is it Michael now? I forget. You know, it's Mike, you know. Um, it, uh, you know, he's grown up now, you know. I just knew he was little Mikey. But, uh, no, it's good to be with them again. It's good to have Janet with me. Um, she likes to come with me, or I like to have her come with me. I don't know whether she likes to come, but um, we have a little more responsibility for my mother now. You know, we get to be empty nesters, and then my mother moves next door. And so she's not always able to come, but I'm glad she could come this weekend. And um, if you want to make her feel good, ask her about her grandchildren. She loves to talk about them. She's way too young to have four grandchildren, but uh, she does. So um, ask about those. I'm a little proud of them too, uh, I will tell you. But um, it is a delight to be here. And I look forward to this series. And I want to encourage you to invite others to come. And we're going to be studying some things that relate to being true disciples of Jesus Christ. In Matthew the 7th chapter, verse 21, you have some words that I have sometimes said, these would make a good introduction to any sermon. You know, whatever you're going to preach on, you start with Matthew 7, 21 through 23, and it would probably work. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. I mean, you just start right off with the idea, if I'm going to please God, I've got to do what God says. But then you keep reading, and He says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in Your name, cast out demons in Your name, and done many wonders in Your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What you see in 22 and 23 are people who would have counted themselves as disciples of Jesus. As people who would have expected to receive the reward. And yet, they didn't truly do the will of the Father. We're going to be looking at some things this weekend, these next few days, that relate to what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus. Tomorrow night, I'll just give you a little heads up, we're going to be talking about how a true disciple is sometimes seen by those around them as narrow-minded. And really what we're going to be talking about is the importance of truth. Really zeroing in on the importance of truth. And I want to encourage you to invite people to come. You know, it's going to be a lesson that I won't say it won't make someone maybe a little bit uncomfortable if they're not accustomed to really putting an emphasis on truth. But I will promise you this, I will deliver the lesson with kindness. I will use the words in the very best way I can not to try to hammer somebody, but to convert people to the truth. I want to encourage you, invite people to come. What I want to talk about tonight as far as discipleship goes is motivation. I see people in the religious world using all kinds of incentives to motivate people, to get them to come to church. Carnal incentives. You know, there's a church in our area. 
They will have all kinds of gimmicks around the 4th of July. They will have snow cones and hamburgers and games set up and you know they're trying to bring people in. Well, the Bible tells us what ought to motivate us. And there are more than there's more than one motivation found in scripture. There are some negative motivations. Our savior had a lot to say about hell, about eternal punishment. But I think the greatest motivation the one that ought to transcend everything else is the cross. That that is the one thing that if we grasp it, people don't have to allure us with basketball, with hot dogs, with you know all the things that we see so much around. So much of religion is either political, social, or recreational. Whereas it ought to be spiritual. Lord willing, Saturday night, we're going to talk about the bread of life. That which really sustains us. But when we grasp the cross, when we understand what happened in the crucifixion of Jesus, that ought to move us to obey the gospel, to become a Christian. It ought to keep us going. You know, being a disciple is not a one-time decision. Jesus would talk about taking up your cross daily and following Him. So tonight we're going to talk about the crucifixion. You know, this basic story I think most people know. Jesus at about the age of 33 was betrayed by Judas, led before a series of trials, Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate and Herod and back to Pilate. Finally he was led out, crucified there on the hill called Calvary between two robbers. What was that all about? Well, I want to begin by asking the question, when we talk about the crucifixion of Jesus, who are we talking about? Who was Jesus? I'm not going to try to answer that question in all detail. But I will tell you this. It was a perfectly innocent man who had done nothing wrong. We're going to be talking tonight about a most horrible death. And as we go through this, I want you to remember this is a death being died. This is suffering being inflicted upon someone who had done nothing wrong. Matthew the 27th chapter. And let me encourage you, if you're using your Bible, and I hope you are, and if it's a paper Bible, I mean, I don't mind electronic Bibles, but if you're using a paper Bible like I am, throw your marker down at 26 or 27 of Matthew. Because I may allude to some of the other accounts, but to make it simpler for everybody to follow along, we'll do most of our reading from Matthew 26 and 27. But in Matthew the 27th chapter, verse 23, I'm skipping toward the end of the trial. When the people are shouting, crucify him, the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more saying, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. You need to think about this. This is the man who is pronouncing the verdict, who is saying, I'm sentencing him to death. And he says, this is a just man. 
This is a man that doesn't deserve to die. I'm going to put him to death anyway. But he doesn't deserve it. I suspect everyone here could say with me though, before the law of the land, I'm, I'm a just person when it comes to capital crimes. I've never committed a capital crime. I've never done anything for which Georgia, I lived in Georgia for nine years. I live in Alabama now. I've done nothing for which either state could lawfully execute me. But I can't say I'm innocent. But the one we're talking about, not only did he not break the law of Rome or Jerusalem, he never did anything wrong. I can't say that. Hebrews 4 verse 15 talks about him being tempted at all points as we are, yet without sin. Peter. And Simon Peter was a man who walked with Jesus for about three years. Observed him closely. Saw him in confrontations. Saw him in the quiet moments. You know, when the guard is down, we might say. And what does he say about him? 1 Peter 2.22 He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. I will tell you, I can't say that. I'm not innocent. I've done things that were wrong things I'm ashamed of. I think all of us would say that. But let me tell you about Jesus even further. To say He was innocent, that's a great thing. But it wasn't just that He didn't do anything bad, He did good. Again, I I, I take the words of Peter. Acts 10.38, He went about doing good. I mean, you think about the people He healed. You think about how that in the midst of all the things going on in his life and people are bringing these little children to him. The disciples, he's too busy. Jesus, no. Let those little children come to me. He had time for them. You know, there's a woman of Samaria. The disciples are just, they just can't imagine that he would talk to her. He does. He takes time with her. He was good. So he was innocent. He was good. But there was more than that. Look at John, the first chapter. John 1 and verse 1 beginning is one of those sections of Scripture, and I'm not the originator of this, but I wish I could read it for the first time again. I read that some years ago, a man said about, and I think it was John, the first chapter. He said, I just wish I could read this again for the first time. I mean, it just, I hope we haven't read it so much that it's lost its meaning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. Now, here we've got the one called the Word, the Lagos. He is with God, but not only, He's not just with God, He Himself is God. He shares the qualities of deity. He's the creator. And then here is that great clap of thunder. Verse 14, and the Word, the one who's with God, who is God, who is creator, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. When you see Jesus, 
And I don't mean you literally see Him with your eyes, but I want you to realize here was a man, a good man, an innocent man, who was much more than a man. He's the Creator. And He came to this earth. He took on flesh. And John said, we were seeing the glory of God. So when we look at the cross, we're seeing the creature rise up to kill the Creator. Don't forget that part of this. Don't forget that as we go through this lesson. Let's go back to Matthew 26. Where we'll be doing some reading. What I'd like for us to do in the next few moments is, in a sense, walk our way up to the cross to look at what happens in the sufferings that night. Jesus had been in Jerusalem for that week. It was the week of the Passover. And at least some of the days He taught in the temple, the rulers had decided they wanted to arrest Him. But they were afraid of the people. I mean, you, you remember that entry He had into Jerusalem where the people are spreading clothes in the street, palm branches, you know, they're shouting Hosanna. Great crowds around Him. The leaders didn't want to try to arrest Him in public. The problem is they didn't know where He went at night. But one man did. Judas. One of His friends. What, Jesus, what happens to Jesus is a friend turns against Him. And while He was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now His betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, He is the one, seize Him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Back in, over in John 13, 18, Jesus had quoted the prophecy, One who's eaten bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. You know how often in the Scripture, eating together... That was that's how people sealed covenants. That was that sign of friendship, of hospitality. And what does Jesus give us to remember His death? The Lord's Supper that we eat together as one. Here's a man, he said, I've eaten bread with you. You ever had a friend turn against you? It starts, I mean, when Jesus said, friend... Why have you come? He's deserted by a friend. He's deserted by all his friends. Look at verse 56. We think about Judas. Since then all the disciples forsook him and fled. All the disciples. It wasn't just Judas that failed him that night. You, you can name them, can't you? The children can. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Philip, Thomas, Matthew, Bartholomew, James, the one they called the less, Simon, also Thaddeus. They all forsook him and fled. Oh, but we remember Peter and John, who are two of the closest of the disciples, they maybe, they maybe gathered their nerves a little bit and they decided to 
follow to see what would happen. But you know what happens with Peter. Peter goes into the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. This is Matthew 26, 69. You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. I might add that Luke's account adds, Jesus turned and looked at him. I don't know what was in that look. But I know what happened to Peter then. Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Peter knew he had failed Jesus. That he had failed him. It hurts when our friends fail us. It happened to Jesus. He was arrested as a common criminal. Verse 55. And I I don't... I mean, when we get to the cross, maybe these things seem insignificant, but they're not. Nothing. It's not as though we we should dismiss this. In that hour, Jesus said to the multitude, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. We've all seen, you know, because of television, somebody's arrested today. So often how they they hide their face from the camera. You know, sometimes if it's a man, he may pull his coat up over his face. Jesus said, here I am. Now remember, this is this innocent man. This is one who's gone about doing good. And he said, I mean, I ride out in the open. I live, I was there in the temple. But you come out like I'm some dangerous criminal. You got all these clubs and these weapons. What what do you think I'm going to do? Who do you think I am? They treat him like a criminal. And then it got much worse. Look at verse 67. Mark tells us that they blindfolded him. So I mean, you've got to get this picture. They blindfold him. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands saying, Prophesy to us, Christ. Who is the one who struck you? They spat in his face. I I, I like to watch football. You know, it's amazing to me the power of some of those athletes. You know, there's this Free safety, 6'2", weighs 225 pounds. You know, he comes flying in like a rocket. You know, knocks somebody's head off. And what happens? They get up, pat each other on the back and say, good hit, you know. You know, they, they play this game with such violence and everybody's good hit. Have you ever seen a game though where somebody got provoked and they spat on another player? I mean, they get up and then out of Donnybrook breaks out. I mean, it's just, they fight like crazy. They've been trying to kill each other. And everybody, that's part of the game. You spit on somebody and then suddenly 
they just go to fighting. That's just the ultimate insult. You don't spit on somebody. They blindfold him. They spit on him. They start hitting him and saying, prophesy. You know it all. Which one of us was it that hit you there? You remember what we said at the very beginning? Who this is? This is the Creator. The men that are doing this, that are spitting on Him, the men who are slapping Him, owe their very existence to the one they spit on, to the one they slap. You just imagine if you found out, or if it was found out that there were some adult children that did something like this to a parent. That they took an aged parent and they blindfolded this parent and they spat on him. The children took turns slapping and saying, guess which one of us hit you that time, Daddy? I don't know that legally they could be put to death. But I tell you, I would fear for their lives. That people would be so upset and so angry over that. And that's what the creature is doing to its Creator. And they keep going. It was a custom that at that time they would release a prisoner. Well, the governor, he knows this is an innocent man. And he knows that the people had been on the side of Jesus. So he gives them a choice between, as he says in verse 16, a notorious prisoner called Barabbas and Jesus. He put the other accounts together. Barabbas had committed murder in an insurrection. In rebellion against the government, he had killed somebody. Well, you got Jesus who's innocent, who goes about doing good, and you got a murderer. What do they want? But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more saying, Let him be crucified. Turn the murderer loose. Let him back out on our streets and kill Jesus. And the governor agreed. But before they would take him to the cross, they beat him. Verse 26. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Sometimes, you know, as a child, and uh, this was hard to believe, but sometimes I got in a little bit of trouble and got a spanking. You know, I got a whipping. We talk about getting a beating. Oh, we just, you know, we'd carry on. My, my younger brother was the worst about just carrying on like, you know, he'd just been killed, you know. It was terrible. 
Uh, we, we, I mean, we got good solid spankings. What we have here is nothing like that. You know, people today, I mean, they think that to put the lightest of switches on a child is abuse. You know, we just don't believe in that. When they scourged Jesus, let's understand, they didn't give Him a whipping. They gave Him a most brutal beating. It is beyond our imagination. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says of the scourge, you know, taking the noun form, the the instrument, it said it was a Roman implement for severe bodily punishment. It consisted of a handle to which several leather cords or leather thongs were affixed, which were weighted with jagged pieces of bone or metal to make the blow more painful or effective. You got a handle, you got the straps, you put bone and metal into it so it would have more weight, more cutting. The victim was tied to a post, some say suspended in the air. They stretched the back tight. And it adds, in the tense position of the body, the effect can easily be imagined. The truth is, you really don't want to imagine it. We just don't want to think about something that brutal. It would tear the skin. It would often expose internal organs. It is said by historians that the victim of a scourging would usually faint. And it was not uncommon for the execution not to even have to take place because people would die as a result of the scourging. This is what they did before they took him out. After all of this, they scourged him, then they lead him out to Golgotha, to Calvary, the place of the skull, it was called. And he said he carried his cross. Oh, I think I left off. I'm getting ahead of myself. And I don't want to do that. Because the crown of thorns is important. They have beaten him. They have brutally beaten him. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Now, when it says they stripped him, remember, this is a man whose back has been bloodied. You know what happens when you put cloth onto an open wound and it begins to clot, then you pull it off. You know about that. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. There's physical pain here. I I think the putting on and the removal of clothes, putting them on, and with a bloody back, a crown of thorns, certainly. But again, the greatest is the mental. They spat on Him. He came into this world to be a king. A king, He would say in John 18, not like the kings of this world. His kingdom was very different. 
But they make him a crown of thorns. They give him a faded old robe. They give him a reed for a scepter. Just belittle him. They belittle their Creator. And then they lead him out to be crucified. The accounts taken together suggest that most likely he was just not able to finish the job because Simon of Cyrene had to be compelled to finish with him. They take him out there and they crucify him. I find it striking that you get to like verse 35 and it just simply says, then they crucified him. It doesn't go into any kind of detail. Didn't need to. When executions are carried out in our country today, they're carried out within the prison walls with a very small select group of witnesses. When they executed a man, when they crucified him, they did it by the side of the road. We'll read just a little bit about some of the things that were said. People just walking by. People knew what it was about. Crucifixion was carried out in public partly as a deterrent. The Roman authorities wanted people to see how terrible this was. And so when we think about that, we need to understand that biblical writers didn't just not give it the detail because it wasn't important. They just didn't need to. We need to think about it a little bit. One of the things that happened there, verse 35, is it says they divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I can remember as a child thinking about them dividing up the garments, and I thought of, I remember you know thinking about it as it fulfilled prophecy, but not really grasping what they were doing. Part of what they're doing was adding to the humiliation. Since the Garden of Eden, right-thinking people have understood that public nudity is a shameful thing. So what do they do? They strip a man. I would say this, perhaps the common depictions of Jesus with the cloth around Him are accurate? Most likely not. They wanted to humiliate someone. They took away His clothes from Him. And then they continued to say things about Him. The very fact they put him between two robbers. You know, that's a statement. You know, here's this innocent, good man. Even the governor said he was an innocent man. We know him. He was the Son of God. <coughs> they just lumped him in with the robbers. And those who passed by, verse 39, blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Can you hear them? If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Just shaking their heads. Probably wagging their fingers at Him. Oh, look at you now. Likewise, the chief priest also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others. Himself He cannot save. If He is the King of Israel, let Him now come down from the cross and we will believe Him. He trusted in God. 
Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. They just can't seem to get enough. So much more humiliation. And then you think about a crucifixion. The nails driven through the hands and the feet. The evidence seems to suggest what they would have done with the feet is bend them where they could just put one nail right through the both of them. Typically bend at a little bit of an awkward angle. You imagine a nail just being driven probably right here at the base of the hand. Your bloody back against that cross. It was said that sometimes on the cross they put a little peg that was kind of a support, a seat, a peg driven into it. Your body is there. The weight of your body pulling down. The weight of your body pulling down on your hands. Sometimes crucifixions were done by tying a man's hands. But not with Jesus. They nailed him. As the weight pulls, you you can just imagine at least some of the pain. Somewhat imagine the pain of that. If you wanted to relieve your hands, the only way to do that was to push with your feet. Those feet that are bent at an awkward angle that also have a nail driven through them. It is said by historians that in order to breathe properly, you, know, you had to push up with your feet. As you were sagging, the lungs began to fill with fluid. It's hard to exhale. And you would have to push up in order to exhale. But the pain of that as you pushed up, your, your legs couldn't handle it. You had to relax your feet only to create the excruciating pain in your hands. It was designed to be torture. Jesus is on the cross about six hours. And you may recall that when they came to Pilate asking for the body, he was surprised that he had died so quickly. Six hours. They thought it would last even longer. It was just a cycle of torture. That would eventually, the body would begin to chill. The lungs filling with fluid. Dehydration is setting in. Those who've studied it. So eventually death came from one of two things. The lungs just filled with fluid. In essence, you drowned. Or you had a heart attack. The heart would fail. It was a horrible death. And when Paul would say in Philippians 2.8, Jesus was obedient to the point of death. And he'd say, even the death of the cross. That evoked an image. People had a picture of that. What does all of that mean? What does the cross mean? I said this lesson's about motivation. All I've done so far is just tell a story. You know, relate to you the account of the crucifixion. Well, the motivation comes in when we understand that the cross, with all the cruelty we've been talking about, is actually 
the greatest act of love that we could ever imagine. John 3.16 is a scripture everyone knows. For God so loved the world. Let me just stop right there. God so loved the world. You know, that, that little word so is intended to help us understand the degree to which He loved. How much did He love the world? He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We can look at prophecies like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. When Jesus was in the womb of Mary, when Jesus was laying in the manger, when Jesus was growing up at Nazareth, the Father knew all along what would happen. Why would God send His Son knowing where it would end? Because He so loved the world. Look at Romans, the third chapter. Verse 23 with me. Romans 3. He's talked about the Gospel in chapter 1. It's the power of God to salvation. But He also says the wrath of God is revealed. Chapter 1, verse 18, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And He's bringing us to what it really is all about when He says in verse 23... Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In these verses, it's not difficult to get lost because of some of the words he uses like propitiation, words we don't use too often. In fact, I dare say that that word's probably not entered into any of your conversation this week. But look at it with me, what he says. We've all sinned. God, by His grace, wanted to redeem through Jesus. How did He do that? He set Him forth as a propitiation by His blood. To propitiate was to appease. It was to turn away the wrath. We understand, we use the concept often. You know, we do something that upsets somebody. We think, well... Maybe I ought to do something for them. You know, maybe you buy your wife flowers. Maybe you cook your husband his favorite meal because, you know, you know you've upset them. You're trying to get them back on your side. You're propitiating them. We don't use that word. That's the concept. Well, think about what this is saying. We're the ones that did the wrong. We have brought God's wrath upon us by our unrighteousness. So how are we going to propitiate? How are we going to turn away the wrath? God says, I will give the propitiation. I will give the offering. I will give the blood of my Son. He gave His blood. 
chapter 5 of Romans 5. I mean, chapter 5 of Romans in verse 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. The latter part of the life has to do with He's the resurrected Savior interceding for us. But notice, while we were sinners, He died for us. We're justified by His blood when enemies reconciled through the death of His Son. When we look at the cross, we're looking at the grossest miscarriage of justice that's ever been. We're looking at this awful suffering. And we need to think on that suffering. And we need to appreciate just what all He went through. But we need to understand why. That God loved us. And God does love us. And Jesus loves us. Jesus once told His disciples, there's no greater love than that a man lay down his life for his friends. And when I think about Jesus and His cross, I think about Gethsemane. I think about Jesus there in the garden. The night before the cross saying, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. I see Him praying three times, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. I don't know if we consciously think it, but I think sometimes subconsciously, some in the back of our mind, somehow we have this idea. I mean, after all, He was the Son of God. It, it probably didn't hurt Him like it would hurt me. You know, that He was different. He was different in His commitment to the Father's will. But he became flesh. And he would say, you know, it would say about him in John the fourth chapter, he, he was sitting by the well because he was tired. It was a long journey, he was weary. Jesus went to the cross not because it wasn't going to hurt, but because it was needed. It was necessary. Before he'd gone out to Gethsemane, remember he'd taken that cup and he said, For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. He knew that what had to happen was what was said in Revelation 1.5 about being washed from our sins in His blood. Jesus died for us. What a show of love. Now, what does that mean? How does that affect us? We have to love Him in return. The world would offer all manner of incentives for people to become Christian in their way of thinking. They do all kinds of things to try to get people to come. What moves us? It ought to be the love of God. The love of Christ that was seen at the cross. 1 John 5 and verse 3 says, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. I want to offer to you the second sentence 
of this verse is not true if you don't accept the first verse, the first sentence. If you don't, if you don't understand and are not motivated by the love of God to keep His commandments. His commandments will be so burdensome you won't make it. You, you won't keep them. You know, you, if, you are, if you are doing it, you know, just because, well, you know, here's a book I've just got to, you know, he gave me a rule book. If you don't learn to see the love of God, if you're only going to church out of tradition, you know, if you're only if you're only doing it to avoid hell, now hell is a biblical motivation. But at some point, you are not brought to love God because He first loved you. I just don't believe you'll make it. I don't think you can sustain it over the long haul. You've got to love God because He loved us. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. We've got to be motivated by love. Look at 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter. Verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us. I hope tonight that if you're not a Christian, the love of Christ would compel you to be obedient. To the very thought that one died for you while a sinner, that ought to move you. But let me tell you, St. Corinthians 5 is talking to Christians. It's talking to people who are children of God. And he says, For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And He died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, I'm sorry. Those who live, live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Chapter 6, verse 1. We then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Again, he's writing to Christians. He says, don't receive the grace of God in vain. Today's the day of salvation. How do we do this? Because He died for us, we will live for Him. I preach sermons about Bible study and about prayer, about holiness, about all manner of things. What motivates us to do those things? If I would think more on the cross, if every Lord's Day when I eat the Lord's Supper, I would truly reflect on what He's done for me, I would pray more. I'd study more. I would serve more diligently. They wouldn't have to browbeat me to get me to come back on a Sunday night. You know, you wouldn't have to be fine. Well, why couldn't you be with us at midweek Bible study? When the cross gets a hold of people, it changes people. Everything about them is different. We've got to let that happen to us. 
The love of Christ has to compel us. Some translations say constrains us. It just gets a hold of you and you just can't do anything but serve the Lord. I hope that will be us. I hope that will be us as be obedient. Jesus was obedient to the point of death. Let's follow Him in our obedience. Hebrews the 10th chapter. He's writing to some Christians who were going through a difficult time. There was some persecution going on. He talks about difficulties. But he warns them. He warns them in verses 26-31 through 31 not to turn back. Not to reject Jesus. And he makes a statement. Verse 29, he says, How much worse punishment do you suppose we be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? counted the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. Counted the blood of the covenant a common thing. If I look at the cross, even if I say, well, that was a terrible tragedy, but I don't really grasp what it's all about. If I don't grasp the fact that that's the love of God trying to save me from my sins, and I don't turn from them, and I don't live for Him, then that blood is is no more tragic. There have been other people died for things that you know they they were not lawfully convicted of. I mean, we 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 see innocent people. We saw. How many people were killed in Las Vegas this week? You know, just shot, gunned down. And we, we, we talk about the loss of these innocent lives. I fear sometimes that's all people do with the cross. It just becomes a tragedy. It's not just a tragedy. It's that that ought to change us and cause us to come to Him if, if we're children of God and we've not been living as we ought, First John 1 says we can come back to that cross and His blood will cleanse us of our sins. If we're not Christians, He says to us in Romans 6, 3, we can be baptized into the death of Christ. And the very next verse says, rise to walk in newness of life. Sometimes I will have somebody tell me, that I ought to preach Jesus and not baptism. The reason I preach baptism is I want people to have Jesus. I want them to have the forgiveness that can only come about through His death. And Romans 6.3 says we are baptized into His death. If you've never done that, I wish you'd do that right now. Not, not because well, that's what the East Side Church of Christ teaches. No. Do that because that's what our Lord taught us to do. The Lord who suffered this unimaginably horrible death made you a promise. He said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. If you've not done that, why not? 
Why not right now as we stand and sing together?